Welcome to season three of Core Stories. I'm Emily Bruff, Communications Director at Otter Creek Church. Since 2005, Shadonki Johnson has been in partnership with Final Command's disciple-making movement, though he's been working as a missionary in Sierra Leone for over 25 years. If you spend any time with Shadonki, he will tell you, this is not my story, it's what God is doing through us. I was able to listen to the way God is working through Shadonki when he came to speak to the ministers in the fall. This is the presentation he made in our ministers meeting. You will hear Steve Sherman, our missionary in residence, start the conversation with a question for Shadonki. Thank you for listening. So if you would just do us a favor and kind of tell us since 2005 how all of this has kind of unfolded. Okay. I want to start by saying um, thank you for allowing me and welcoming me to this place. You know, we are Africans. You, we can't just take anything for granted. So I want to say thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, again, for us, we need to know the names of my name. My full name is Shodanke Batsilo Egujama Bajala Johnson. Shodanke means son of peace. Batsilo means everybody's son. Egujama means he's harmless. Bajala means don't touch him. Johnson. So, you know, when, when I go to communities and, you know, they hear my name, so I'm, I'm everybody's son. <laughs> so I'm harmless, so don't touch me. <laughs> um, well, we, whatever we are going to share here, really, it's, it's just God's own story. It's what God is doing. God has just chosen to do it through us because we are there. But it's not my story. It's not the story of the guys, men and women on the ground that God is using in all these different countries. It is his story. And um, we normally say in everything we do, we don't touch the ark. The glory belongs to God. Every glory belongs to him. Everything that has happened belongs to him. We are just instruments that he's using. And um, I'm glad to share what he's doing. We, I grew up from a, a traditional background. My father was a Methodist. And my mother was a Muslim. Which itself, at that time, was very strange. My father comes from the, from the background of the returned slaves. If you know the story of Sierra Leone, especially Freetown. Freetown was bought as a land from the indigenous, the local people. The intention was to bring the returned slaves who are willing to go back to Africa and settle them in a place like the Americans did with Liberia. So that was like what the British and other people were doing. And Freetown became that land that was bought for the returned slaves. And um, most of them were not originally from Sierra Leone. They were from every part of the world, but wanted to go back and find, have a new identity. So that's why the city is called Freetown. So it simply meant that as long as you are there, you are free. So um, it's a very beautiful city uh, by, by, uh, along the Atlantic Ocean. 
So when the people settled in Freetown, unfortunately, when the slaves went back, they could not fit into the culture of the local people because they had been removed from the cultural baseline. And the people that returned back were generations of slaves as we are born. Some of them were born in slavery. So they could not fit into the culture of the local people. The local people were really different from them. The way they spoke, the food they ate, the way they dressed, everything was different. And even Creole, which is a broken English that they were speaking, was not a local language. So they tried to integrate, but it was difficult for them culturally. So Freetown became their base. And um, that is why in Freetown, Freetown became the crown colony. So it means all the land in Freetown was bought for the returned slaves and it belonged to the returned slaves. But the rest of the land in the country was called the protectorate. It belonged to the local people. So we had a two-law system in our law books. And that's what we have up to now, even though it's not been practiced, but we still have them. All the land in Freetown in the western area belongs, it was the crown colony that belonged to the queen, but now it belongs to the government. So really, as a local person, you don't have a land in Freetown. You buy it from the government. But all the land in the provinces, we call them provinces now, it used to be the protectorate, belongs to the local people. So the government has to lease land or buy from the local people. So that was the type of situation. And so I come from that background. Originally, by our law, I'm living present in the protectorate. I'm not supposed to have any land in the protectorate. Because I come from the crown colony. If I'm going to get a land in the protectorate, I have to marry an indigent in the protectorate so that we'll have land in the protectorate. So that was the kind of law system. It's not been really practiced, but it's still in our law books. Anybody can pick that up and it's seen in our law books. And so my father, just to give you a background, comes from that background. My father was a natural adventurer. He just liked to travel and find out things for himself. So he traveled to the protectorate in the island called Bonth. Bonth is an island, one of the islands we have, a very big island. It's surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean. And that's where my father went to and saw this young girl who was a Shabro. We have the Shabros that stay in that island, one of the tribes. And he fell in love with my mother. Well, he knew there were cultural barriers, but there was also religious barriers because my mother come from a Muslim background. Her entire family of Muslim. My father is a Creole, a Methodist. Now, so it was a major problem. So, the, you know, the people said, no, we can't give our daughter to you to be married because you're a Christian. So that's off the chart. But my father was not a man who would take no for an answer. So he kept on coming, knocking at the door. He kept on doing all the nice things. And they said, okay, we've agreed to give our daughter to you to be married on one condition, that you will never convert her to become a Christian. Well, I don't know what my father was thinking. He was so much in love. He said, fine. So that's how they got married. And we became the product of that marriage. We are eight in the family, four boys and four girls. So when I grew up, I grew up seeing my mother praying five times a day. But my father was very strict on the Sabbath. He was, for him, the Sabbath, his understanding of the Sabbath was every Sunday we'll go to church. And all throughout my life, there was no time we went to church late. In fact, we were in church earlier than the pastor. 
That was my father's own understanding about the Sabbath. We did not do anything on Sunday. Sunday was just you eat in the morning, you dress, you go to church, you come back, and you sleep for the whole of the day. Even the dogs understood the Sabbath in our house. So they were not even back. <laughs> so um, that was the kind of background. So we are always in church early. Always. So we occupy the front pews because we are always in church. There was no competition with us. We sat on the front pew. My father was really strict. He was a man that was really disciplined because he, he had that mindset. in this. So when we go to church, he will always tell us, when you're in church, you just focus on the pastor. Look at the pastor. Whatever the pastor is doing, listen to the pastor. So he will sit in the front pew. He's sitting back of us. And we are always consistent at that. If you try to turn too much, you push your head, look at the pastor. <laughs> so, so eventually we grew looking at the pastor. You know, just what the pastor was doing. And when I was growing up, I started practicing what the pastor was doing. So if we go to church, when I come back home on Mondays, I will get all the kids in our neighborhood. And exactly, I will do what the pastor was doing. I will lead the procession. I didn't know what I was doing, and all the kids will follow me. And uh, then I will ask my mother for bread. And he, my mother will give me bread. I will cut the bread in pieces, and I will give all the kids. You know, I, I will just say a word, and the kids are eating the bread. My mom did not understand what I was doing. So my mom one day asked my dad, I see your son giving bread to the, to the kids in the neighborhood. I don't know what he's doing. He opens their head, they open their mouth and he put the bread there. And my fat, father figured it out and said, oh, maybe it's communion. <laughs> they give communion. So I started giving communion even before I was ordained. <laughs> so, so that was the background I grew up with. When I went to high school, I was exposed to what became a scripture union. People studying the Bible together. And I started, I became part of the scripture union group, studying the Bible. And I started to get an understanding of the scripture more than what I was getting in the church. And one day I was invited by a, young, a friend of mine. And he said, you know, we, we invite you to a church. We have a Thanksgiving service in our church, a youth Thanksgiving service. Thanking God for all the young people. We want to invite you to come and visit. And I said, okay. I told my dad, he said, fine. That was my first time outside my normal church. So I got to this church. And there was a guy who was invited to preach. I did not know anything about guest preachers. Again, that was my first exposure to anything like that. And he preached heavily. He was talking about the lost tribes in the country. And the lost areas that were really unrich. He was focusing on the northern part of Sierra Leone, which was at that time like 99.9% Muslims. And he was encouraging people to go to the north and uh, bring the gospel to the Muslims that were there and the African traditional religionists that were in the north. And I was really touched by his speaking and I was really moved. That was my first exposure to really hearing about lost people. And at the end of his message, he said, if, is there anybody here who wants to be trained and coached to go to the north, at least for a short time? Well, I was really moved by what he was saying. And I'm sitting in front, and I put up my hands. In my mind, I was really thinking that maybe there are other people, this is a very powerful message. 
that have put up their hands. Again, that was my first time that so anybody told me, well, stand up, come in front. I was not exposed to things like that. So I stood up and I came in front. At that time, I realized I was the only person that I put up my hands. And I was saying to my, what have I done to myself? <laughs> but from that moment, this man was called Claude Gray. He was the coordinator for YMCA in that region. So he was just invited to speak to the young people. And that's how he became my friend. And they started coaching me. And I came back after some time, I told my mom that I really want to go to the north just for a short time. And then figure out what will happen after that. My dad wanted me to study law. At my initial stage, I studied economics. But my dad's intention was that because most of the Creoles in our country, they are either lawyers or they're economists. So even if you go back home today, the judges, the Supreme Court, they are all Creoles. Most of them are Creoles. That is their own niche. And um, I told my mom, I just want to go to the north for a short time and come back there. I will go and study law. Because my father, when I told him about ministry, this was what he told me. I have no problem with you becoming a minister. He said, but go and study law. Then you will practice law. When you retire from practicing law, you will not come become a minister. Because in our church, every other person that I saw as a pastor was really somebody that has retired from something. And they became ministers. And so that was the mindset of my father about who a pastor is. Somebody that has retired on his normal job and now he's coming to serve. So that was a difficult thing for my mom to take. He knew my dad was not going to allow that. But we discussed after some time and finally my mom went and approached my dad and told him. My dad said, no, he's too young. He should go and serve the law when he retires. And, but my mom continued to talk to my dad. And I still remember one thing that my mom said to my dad. He said, if this is what God has called him to do, then you will not stop him. In the local language. If this is what God has called him to do, you will not stop him. Well, after some weeks, my dad said, okay. I, you have my blessing to go. The intention was to go for four months on a short-term mission. But I went to the north. I fell in love with the Muslims so much. And I realized that these people, you know, they were really helpless. And they needed a savior. From all what I saw them doing, I really knew they needed God. So when I got there, I said, God, I'm here. I don't know what to do. So that's why I refer to myself as an accidental missionary. It was not something I planned. I just got into it accidentally. And so I spent some time to pray and fast. And I said, God, I'm here. Tell me what to do. The four months became almost five years. I just stayed there. Then started to teach. There was a school that needed an economics teacher. So I volunteered to be a teacher of economics in the school. So I started to teach, and that became a platform for me. The principal allowed me to share stories about the Bible in the assembly. So I did that every morning. That was part of my payment, my check, my monthly check. And so um, a lot of the young people wanted to hear more. And uh, 
we started to explain to them and some of the teachers got exposed to what I was saying. And that was how I was really launched into what I'm doing today. And um, I started to figure out some things as I was going. Some of the students went back to their parents who have this very good teacher. He's very good in economics and commerce. We want him to have, it's very, back home people love teachers to take special classes. They call it private classes after school, you know. So some families invited me in their home. So I came to those homes and built relationship with those family members. And once those relationships were strong, they trusted me and they opened up. They told me a lot of things they would not tell an ordinary person. And the only thing I needed to do was to pray. So I would tell them, well, I can't do anything about this, but I know something. I, I know that I can pray for you. And he said, okay, no problem. So we prayed. And in the early days of my ministry, I also came to realize how God answers the prayer of these people faster than he will even answer my own prayers. And those prayers that were answered became an open door for them to want to know more about God and trust him more. And that's how some of the families say to give their lives to Jesus. And, um, but the only method I really knew to plant a church was a traditional method. So we planned like one or two church a year. And man, that was great. We celebrated it. Um, but as time went on, I realized we needed other people. So we had to bring in other young men. One of my friends is here, Joseph. We were all single, not married at that time, and some other guys. And I said, look, this is about the kingdom. We are working among Muslims. You know, we can pull our strength together and see what we can do. And God honored that. We started fasting and praying. For about 12 years, we 12 to 13 years that we, we are together, we only really planted like 12 churches. The traditional way. But what happened was that during the war in my country, we had a war that started in 1991 and ended in about 2002, officially. So during the war in that country, a lot of damages occurred. People were killed, people were hurt, men, just every wicked thing you could think about on the face of the planet happened. And one of my sons that I adopted, uh, he was, the, normally the, the rebels or the soldiers would attack a town and they will burn down the whole village, except the rebels, and they will kill everybody. So you, some people escape, but you have to be very fortunate to escape. And this young man, they killed his parents, and they used the boot of a gun. He was at the age of one, and they bashed his face to death and left him under the rain. It was out of that that I was able to Get, see this young man and he became my because nobody really could take him and when this was happening we brought a lot of people whose two hands were cut off legs cut off, ears cut off so we started bringing them to town I had young men that would go and rescue them and we would bring them to MSF which was Doctors Without Boundaries, they were the only medical people around and eventually that's how we started even a camp we call it an amputee camp for just people who were amputated Cut off hands, cut up. So again, we started working in those camps to help them, to de-traumatize them, to bring them back into society. 
So because of that, I had a lot of relationship with amputees, a lot of them, even today. If wherever they see me around the country, they're singing, they're dancing. We're able to teach them a lot of song, able to baptize a lot of them, <coughs> align their hopes with God, because that was the only hope they really had. And um, so two of my sons that I have are adopted from that background. One of them, he was the age of five, they killed his parent, cut off his right leg. You know, and so I adopted him. It was that son, because of that son, through Jerry Trusday. You know, Jerry was a missionary in Sierra Leone. He had been in Sierra Leone, worked in Sierra Leone for many years. And uh, when the war was subsiding, he went back to Sierra Leone to see what was happening. He had created a relationship with another young man that we were all working together, another man. And he went back to see. And during one of his visits, Jerry saw my son in one of the schools that I had started. And Jerry was really moved by what he saw. And he said, well, I think Shudanke will come back and see if we can help this young man. So they will bring him to the state and do a plastic surgery on his face. That is how he made the arrangements. My wife came with, us, with Idrissa and uh, the doctors in Murfreesboro and some other doctors came together and started to help to reconstruct his face. After a few months, I came with my other kids, my two of my daughters at that time. So we all came, we were in Murfreesboro. And at that time, one day, Jerry came to me and said, there's this um, class going on on Perspective. You know, and um, will you love to come? He said, there's a guy coming in town who is going to teach today. Will you love to come? I said, no problem. So I, I came to the class, the Perspective class, and the guy who was teaching, who came to teach, was uh, <clears throat> David Watson. You know, he was teaching on spontaneous church growth and church multiplication. And I sat at the back of the class. I was listening to him as he was talking more. His case study was more among the, the, the Bujapiri people in there and talking about how, what is happening. And in my mind, I said, this man, either he don't know what he's talking about or he's just lying. Or maybe there's something that we need to learn from him. So when he finished, I went to him at the back of the class, I introduced myself, and I said, I've been working with Muslims all these years. But I, I'm really interested in this thing that you are saying. Will you be able to coach me and just sort of discuss? So that's how David Watson became my friend. And uh, he was able to coach me and teach me about what was happening in there. And I copied almost everything he said. Went back, prayed about it. As I always say, I normally tell James, I had the temptation to stay here in America because I was coming from war. And for 10 years, you know, being arrested five times during that process, came close to death. You know, even to get food to eat was a difficult thing. Um, almost lost my family. I had only one clothes left on my back. And so when we had the opportunity to come here as a family, <laughs> we had friends calling me. What are you going to do again in Sierra Leone? God has given you this opportunity, man. Don't go back. Just stay here. Even the church that um, Jerry was, you know, they said, come, you'll be on staff. Stay in America. But in my heart, I still was thinking I have, a, I have something to do in Sierra Leone. I was thinking about all the people I've left behind. So I told them to give me a week to pray and fast about this. So I fasted and I prayed for one week. And after the fasting, 
I, I had no peace that I should stay in America. And so I told them that I'm going back home. And I had received so many phone calls from Sierraleans living outside the state, I mean, in other parts of America, calling me, what are you going to do in Sierra Leone? What is wrong with you? You know, this is a big opportunity for your children. Stay here. But I said, no, God wants me to go back. So I went to the church. I told them. So I went back. I went back with my two daughters who flew back. And my wife had to stay because they were still doing more surgery on Idrissa. So they needed time to complete the work. So I said, okay, you stay. The level of temptation I'm getting now, if I continue to stay, there's a tendency. I will, I will succumb under this temptation. So let me go. So that's the reason really why I went back home. Because the temptation was too much. Too much opportunities. and So I went back home. Honestly, when I got back home, the first night, no light. <laughs> no drinking water. And I was lying down in the dark. And I said, why did I come here? <laughs> why did I come here? But I just continued to stay. And David was invited. The training was supposed to happen in Guinea. We were supposed to go to a training, I mean, in Ivory Coast. But just about that time, Ivory Coast also had a big rebel unrest in the country. So the training could not happen there. So they decided, they called me. I said, well, we can get the training in Freetown. So we had a training in Freetown. So I took my leaders to the training. Some other churches were invited. And David did a training. We did a training in National Stadium. We still have the pictures of that training. And after the training, every day I will ask my leaders, what are you learning? And at the end of those training, we met together. And I said, what is God saying to you? I said, because I'm convinced that this is the path God wants us to go. I had some few leaders who did not agree with me. And I said, okay. So we blessed them and we released them. And the rest of the other leaders who decided to fast for a month to seek the face of God. And we said, God, if you, if this is what you want us to do, then we want to obey you. And so we fasted at the end of the one month. All of the leaders who were with me said, we're going to follow you. We believe this is what God wants us to do. So we sent out the first set of church planters in different places. Joseph, one of the guys who was here, happened to be one of the team leaders in one of the church plants as they went out. We all went to different places among the very difficult people's group that we knew needed the penetration of the gospel. And it's, it's really humbling to see that in March 2005, when we set out, God honored those prayers that we lifted to him. Communities that we are so difficult to penetrate, where missionaries have tried for maybe 50 years, 60 years, and they could not penetrate them. You know, miraculously, God opened those communities. Some of them, like one of the communities Joseph went to, the area, there's Joseph, another guy called Moses. They went to that community, had a breakdown, and all of a sudden, you know, the chief, the wife of the chief had just died. And you, you know, if you know the African culture, when somebody dies, especially the wife of a chief, it's like a queen dying. It's a big deal. And uh, people are crying and rolling from end to end. Of, because everything they did, we did not have mortuaries and all these things. So they washed the body as you, when you, they washed the body and they cleaned the body and wrapped the body ready for burial. People would go and dig the grave 
And the grave diggers would come back and announce that we dug the grave. And now they would pray, take the body to the mocks, pray, and then they go with the body. It was within that time. But part of the training we got and part of the thing that I really uplifted because I had, I was really introduced to prayer at an early age. So prayer was like something I really took very seriously. So when I did the training, I really let all my guys to know that this is a faith journey. It is God's journey. So no matter what training you get here, when you go out in the field, listen to God and listen to what God is telling you. And know that we had a code. Don't ever limit God. He can do anything. He's God. And so when they went and met this problem, they decided that, you know what? We have been taught that we should not limit God. So they told the people who want to pray. And the people were surprised because nobody has ever said, let me pray for the dead. So they prayed to the dead, but not for the dead. And they prayed hours. And all of a sudden, this woman sneezed. She sneezed, sat up, and asked for water. So that alone, I mean, everybody's looking at them. And because of that, the community opened up. The chief and everybody said, who are you people? And that's how that community opened up. And Discovery Bible Studies, we have started. And today, as I speak to you, that those communities here exist. We have more than 30 churches in those communities. In fact, all of those areas now are predominantly followers of Jesus. And there are other communities that God had to show up and just do things that needed to be done, relationships that we have created. So the very first month, just in one month, we planted more than 10 churches. And we were excited. And that's how the process started. We came back on the drawing board and we intentionally said, okay, now we have, certainly have about 22 tribes. But we had like 9 to 11 major tribes as we are lost that did not have penetration of the gospel. And we said, okay, now what do we want to do? We want to be a movement that will have tribes, every tribe in this nation represented. So we are going to have champions for every tribe. So we gave ourselves like a five-year plan. Every tribe, there should be multiple disciples, multiple church plants, multiple groups, and baptism made. And so we had champions. Joe, he was, he was focusing on the Timinis and the Limbers because he's a Timini. He speaks Timini fluently, and he also speaks Limba fluently. So he, that was his focus. And then other guys focused on other tribes. And I, I tell you, we, in between doing this, we are praying and fasting. We meet together and see what is working and what is not working. So I will put together what is working. I will send it to David Watson and tell him this and this is working, but this and this is not working. And what we are discovering new, we'll write down those things we are discovering new and send it back to him. You know, these are the things we are discovering new. And after some time, of course, I was doing training with him around the world, travel a lot doing training, using the case study of Sierra Leone and the best practices that we are seeing. And uh, eventually we came back after five years and we celebrated every tribe had been touched. And then we said, okay, now we want to take this to every district. We have, we used to have like 12 districts. Now we have about 16 districts. We said, okay, every district, we should see this happen in every district. So we gave ourselves another five years for every district. 
in every district in our country today, everyone you go to, there are multiple churches, multiple leaders in every district. We celebrated that also. And then we came back and said, now we have enough to go for every chiefdom. Chiefdom is like what, what you call like a county here. And we, we had, in that country, we have more than 2,000 chiefdoms. It's about 1,700 or something. Right? It has been added, chiefdoms. So we went for those chiefdoms. And every chiefdom, as I speak to you today, there's no chiefdom you will go that you will not see presence of this work in every chiefdom. And while this was happening, most of the leaders now that have been successful, like Joseph or other leaders, several of them, I said, okay, it's time for us to take this outside Sierra Leone. And so we started to train people in Liberia, in Guinea. And we started sending people there. As I speak to you, there are multiple partners we have in Liberia, in Guinea. And this process is happening in those countries. The same way it's happening in Sierra Leone. And then we said, okay, let's try Gambia, which is 98% Muslim nation. And the same result we are getting in Gambia. And that's how we started to send out missionaries. And uh, the next strategy was that every village where there's no Jesus option, we should make sure there's a Jesus option. So right now we're on the face of every village where there's no Jesus option. And the same strategy we use, that's what we are repeating in other countries, looking at the tribes that are unrich. Like in Liberia, we are dealing with the vice, we are dealing with the Gola people, and we are dealing with the, with the cream in Liberia. And I'm telling you, churches have been planted, multiple churches. And now, as I speak to you, we are partnering with a, a, a group called Seed Comlin, and we are doing scripture translation into the pidgin and some of these languages right now as I speak to you. We are doing that. And then in Sierra Leone, we, are, we, are just, we just set all the committees, uh, committees right now in Sierra Leone. We are trying to do scripture translation in Madingo and Fula. In Sierra Leone. It is our people doing it. We just have some people who come out and coach us how to do it. So um, this is what God has been doing. And then with the partnership with Final Command that we had, now they also looked at other countries. And some of these leaders that have really be successful in doing this. We said, look, it's about the kingdom. Because from the very first day, we are kingdom mindset. It's about the kingdom. It's about his glory. Whatever we can do anywhere in the world, we're willing to do it. Because we want to see the kingdom, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we partner with our final command. Happen to be also be part of final command. And then... Uh, God has also, you were seeing the same result in other nations that's there where they are also operating. And we have other partners that we have trained in Nigeria. I remember when I went to Nigeria to do what we call exposure training. I went to Nigeria and uh, I had a friend who worked in Tia Fund and he was working so many churches, big churches. So he called the bishops together and said, you know, there's, I, I've gone to Sierra Leone and I saw what this young man is doing. And maybe I just want you to hear his story. I will never forget the bishops, you know, all of them. And they said, which country is Sierra Leone? What, what can Sierra Leone teach us? You know, we're, Nigeria is a big country. And they said, what do, you have, what do you have to share with us? And I said, well, um, I don't want you to, I want you to know that Jesus came from a, a region of the world where nobody was expecting anything to happen. So if you could just listen to me. And they said, okay, we only give you one hour, just one hour. 
I said, okay, no problem. So in one hour, I was able to do an introduction. And after the one hour, I made sure I stopped on the one hour mark. And then I paused. They looked at themselves and they said, I think we have more time. You can take so. <laughs> <laughs> and so we continued. So that's how our partnership in Nigeria started. And they said, okay, send us some guys. So we have always, one of the things I learned from my dad, even before I could learn it in school, my, own my, my father's understanding of John 3.16, he stretched it in his own mind, his own theology. My father will always say, I will always learn to give my best in everything. He said, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he gave us that philosophy that anything you want to do, you should really just to give the very best of it, not the second best. You can't give your second best to God. So we grew up before I understood what theology was really about. But that was his own theology that he built around that. So we started giving our very best guys out to see a replication of this happen. But the more we do it, the more God raised leaders. So I normally tell people leadership is not the problem. We have a pool of leaders at every layer. And in the process of doing this over the years, God has been able to have all this number of churches that have been planted. And the interesting thing that I want you to notice is that even in Sierra Leone, there are many people who have had my name, but they don't know me. So there are many places we go to. It is my very first time, just like the people I take, the first time I'm there, they really don't know me. Maybe the leader will know me or nobody. I go to some churches, some groups on Sunday. I will sit like at the back of the group. We go to Discovery Bible Studies and I leave. Nobody knows me. So I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Because it's not about me. It's not about an individual. It's about him. And he has been able to replicate that all throughout the movements in many, many places. When I, I normally reach out to every segment, we have what we call every segment, no segment left behind. And so we have motorbikes. You know, motorbikes are like taxis. So we decided that we are going to target the lost motorbikes, especially those who are Muslims. So we had a whole year of focusing on them. So I, I will intentionally take motorbikes to take me around so that I will create a, find a person of peace. So, you know, some of them were talking on the bike and maybe I will take them for one hour. And by the time that one, one hour finish, I know whether this is a man of peace or not, I'll take another motorbike for another one hour. So I'll do that for the whole day and find persons of peace. And so I remember one of the guys, after taking for one hour, we spoke, he was sharing his life and because three basic things we normally tell every person that's going to really become a good disciple maker. The first thing is that be a good listener. Listen to people. Even if you think you know, just listen. You just listen to them. They find joy when you listen to them. And there's a mutual respect when you listen to them. But the second thing we also tell them, be a great learner. Be open to learn from them. You can learn something you've never learned before. And then the third thing is that be a good trainer or coach or storyteller. Because after you've listened to them, after you learn from them, now, if you want to tell your story, they will listen to you. They'll be open. 
And the story you're going to tell, maybe starting with your own journey in life with God, then you can navigate from that to tell the story, the Bible story, starting from creation. So that's what I do with the bad guys. I listen to them. There are times we'll break somewhere, buy food, we sit down, and we are talking. I remember one day after being with these bad guys, and I told him, I'm going home. I said, I'm going to Mount Pleasant. The area where I stay, I call that whole, I named the community Mount Pleasant. So everybody called it Mount Pleasant. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to Mount Pleasant. The moment I said, I'm going to Mount Pleasant, I said, oh, you're going to, uh, that's where Pastor Johnson stays. I said, you know him? He said, oh, yes, I know him very well. I know the man very well. I said, please take me to him. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. <laughs> so I jumped, you know, we had riding and I said, how do you know him? He said, oh, that man, you know, he started to talk all the things. I'm sitting behind him. <laughs> and we got to the house and I paid him and I said, uh, I really want to see how you can help me. He said, man, you need to connect with this man. He's a great man. He's a great man. You know, okay, take my number so that we'll have a time to talk about this man. But this guy now has become a follower of Jesus. When he finally realized that I'm the man he's talking about, <laughs> it became a phone. We all laugh about it. But that is a kind of thing. So we are very intentional. When we decide that we're going to zero on this type of people, we bring them, you know, under our prayer line. We mobilize intercessors. Pray for this group of people. Fast for them. We even send, if it's a village or town, we will send people there. Nobody should know that you are there. But you were there, you are praying. There are many towns and villages where it would have been impossible for you to just go with the Bible in your hands. I've come here to evangelize. They will drive you or they will beat you, or you will die. But we go to those towns, the intercessors that we go there, we pretend they are doing business, maybe to buy palm oil, something. Because you need to have a reason why you are there. And what we do, they'll be there maybe for a whole week. See, having business people find a person of peace, but they are praying. All the major towns, the major community areas will pray. And most of the towns will pray prayers like, God, if it is your will for people to be saved, we don't know God, but you know everything. If this town is ripe for salvation, then God will pray that this town will be called a town of salvation. These streets will be called a street of redemption. This will be called a power, a street of your word. Your light will shine in this town. God, we are raising you up. Because when we lift you up, you draw all men unto you. Draw this town. They will name the name of the chief. Because we, by this time we know all the names of the elders, the gatekeepers. We know their names. We bring their names before God. And I have seen how God has used that to break through the most difficult and most unlikely people. There are people that today are followers of Jesus. Honestly, even in my own mind, I never thought it would happen. And God used simple things to just touch them. And, and so that's how, you know, the Lord has used this platform. And we continue to use. For example, we, I, I play soccer. I love soccer so much. <clears throat> so at some point, I just decided that, you know, we have a lot of young Muslim guys who are firing. In Islam, most times the younger guys are more 
they're highly radical and dangerous than the older people. So we had a Muslim youth league who are radicals, who are like Saul in the Bible, under oath that the church should not survive and Christians should be killed. They were literally under oath. So when I read about Saul in the Bible, I've seen this among Muslim groups. So in the soccer team we had in the city, Bow Rangers, was 100% Muslim. And we prayed about it. I told my intercessors. I said, I pray that I, I want to begin to go and practice with them. So we prayed about it when I had the peace. One morning I jogged, went there, and I told them I just want to train with them. They said, oh, no problem, come. So we started to train, and everything the coach would teach the guys, I would do it. You know, and I would run the field, and, and then we will go into teams. And I would play with the teams. You know, I used to be a great goal, uh, great goal scorer. And so very quickly, they would see my talents coming out. And, but there are times, you know, they would tackle me, hard tackle. Yeah, it's not, this is not the church. I mean, this is field. <laughs> <laughs> Repentance will be done later, but this is field. This is, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, they would tackle me hardly. And uh, there are times I would fall down and I would see them laughing. You know, I, so no problem. And we continue to do that. And then what I did was that I started to befriend the coaches. There was a lead coach among them. He became my friend. So after the game, one day I took him out and we bought, we call it soft drink. You call it soda here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we, we sat down and I said, I really love the way you are coaching. I really love your coaching. I said, but you know what? I, I want us to be friends. I want you to coach me physically. But I also have to coach you spiritually. I said, I'm a spiritual coach. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I will coach you and tell you some stories that will really help your coaching. He said, I'm interested. And so that's how he became my friend. So when we finish coaching, we'll, we'll go out and sit somewhere. And he will show me the rules of the game. I know the rules of the game. But I pretend I don't know. And then sort of have an opportunity to also show him the rules, spiritual rules. And eventually, he loved what we were doing. He fell in love with Jesus. And he was baptized. And I said, now, I want you, what I have done, you do to the other coaches that you have. So we'll come for training. So he started to do the same thing with the other coaches. And I'm telling you, as I speak to you, all five coaches became followers of Jesus. And now he said, what? I said, now tell the coaches, divide them. So each of them will target on set of players. And that's what they decided to do. To the ball rangers, it's 80% followers of Jesus. And that team has a high profile. And out of that, those coaches, we introduce coaching, training for coaches. We have some people who came out, you know, who are professional coaches, came and trained these coaches. And then we introduced Discovery Bible Studies in the training. And all these coaches who are Muslim started doing Discovery Bible Studies as we went through the training. Today we have multiplied that. I was doing a training in South Africa for one year to, for a group. They have a, a college in South Africa that train coaches. So I told them, okay, I will, I, will coach, I will train you for one year, only one year. And then I expect you people to pick it up from there. 
So I was going there, and that's how they gave me scholarship in Hallowell. When they are to train, there's another one, Rogers, who was also a Muslim, when they are to train in then Vandy. So they, they gave them a very good coaching certificate, which is recognized in the sub-region. So that gave them platform to begin to coach other professional coaches. And through this soccer today, so many communities open up because of soccer. Where the guy, when we see a lot of young, firing Muslim guys, we come in and we say, look, we, have, we want to come and play your community a soccer match. We are coming from Bow Rangers. We want to come and play you. Oh, they will say, you come. So we provide them with soccer ball. We give them maybe two or three soccer balls. We give them a set of jersey for that game so that they will look at it very professional. I'm telling you, you will see four or 5,000 people. All the chiefs, everybody coming with drums. They will take out the drums. They are singing for their local team. They take it very highly. The village will contribute. They will cook food. For, for the <laughs> so we come in with our own guys. You know, just what you see in the normal soccer thing. We take it. They will bring a professional ref. But our guys are trained to play. But we always tell them, you lose the first game so that Jesus will win. Play well, but you have to find a way to lose the first game. Because discipleship starts from the place of relationship. The gospel flies best on the wings of relationship. And so relationship is key in discipleship. You can't disciple somebody if you don't have a relationship. So we try to create relationship. So when we lose the first game, we play well, and maybe close to the end of the game, somehow, you know, they will kick a ball that we know our goalkeeper can. You just make something that goes into the bar. My goodness. Everybody will come to the field. They are dancing. And they are now, they win the match. And they are dancing. They are jubilating. And we shake their hands. We create friends. Every player creates friends. And then we tell, okay, you've won this match. But don't you think we should play, have another second match sometime later to see who is really the champion? And they'll say, oh, yes, anytime you come, we're ready for you. Because in their mindset, they have a winning mindset now. They're thinking, we'll, we'll defeat this team from the big town. Now, we we'll normally wait at least within two weeks. Because momentum is also very important in what we're doing. If the momentum drops, it's difficult for you to raise it up. So when, within two weeks, they're still talking about it, the whole village, the community is talking about it, we'll come back for a second match. Now, this second match, we'll trash them very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe six to nothing or seven to nothing. <laughs> and it's also intentional. We trash them so that they will get annoyed, you know, and wanting to play the third match. <laughs> because we want to create more relationship. So the moment we trash them, they'll say, ah, well, they are not suggesting we need one more match. We, we need to find a champion. We say, okay, no problem. When do you want the match? They will say, oh, in the next three weeks, so we want the match. And they will train. And they will come. There are times, you know, we'll beat them or there are times we'll just draw. We all allow them to win again so that they are happy. But as that happens, relationship is created. And out of those relationships, places of peace are found. And we begin a discovery Bible studies. And many people have been baptized through that. And churches and groups formed. So normally we say whatever it takes. 
Whatever the Lord is impressing our heart that we think we can use to get into the community is what we use with the intention of starting relationships that will lead to the person of peace. And then the process of discovery is started. Well, one of the things that um, we talked about yesterday, and I think you got a point, uh, is I think part of our failure is, is we probably don't fast and pray enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part is, is I've, I've just been trying to figure, and I know you guys work a lot in this here in the United States and trying to figure out how to implement these principles here. And um, I just like your observations on that. If you, if yeah. you know, um, the, the truth is that um, the it's, Again, it's a traditional mindset of the church. As I said, I believe that missionaries, many of them were not really emphasizing so much on prayer and fasting. And so that became a kind of defect. But the, the truth is that I spent a lot of time just doing research in the scripture on, on prayer and on fasting. And uh, of course, if we look at the Old Testament, uh, many of you know that this was a it was a traditional practice. It was, I mean, a lot of people do it. You read outside scripture, you find a lot of examples of this. And um, of course, there was a time that even in church history or even the Bible, it became like a traditional thing, you know, which is wrong. But I also saw that prayer and fasting was very key to the ministry in the New Testament. And especially starting with Jesus. That he never, he did not start his ministry. And the Bible says in Matthew 4, 1 to 3, and in Luke 4, 1 to 3, he said, but he went into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, when I looked at that passage, the passages, and then I go back to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, reading from verse 1, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he says, there's nothing that was made that was not made through him. He was there in the beginning. Now, if the word is God, and Jesus, from every understanding of the Bible, is the word. And the Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Now, if the word, which is Jesus, became flesh, if he's the word, why did he fast the way he fasted? Why did he need to fast? He's the word. He was there from creation. And there was nothing that was made that was not made through him. And that was just so had some of the questions that started to come to my mind as I was doing my research. And then as I continued to look at the, the, the work of Jesus, as I continued to look at the work of Jesus in the Bible, and I started to see how much time he spent in prayer. So much that it, it became like almost a tagline that, and he went out to pray. And he went out to pray daily. He went to an, a, a desolate place to pray. That became almost like a tagline. And I also, in my discovery, I also came to the point to see that even before he chose his 12 disciples, he prayed for the whole of the night. And then he called the 12. When he wanted to perform the miracle of the, the two fish and the five loaves, 
I mean, he would have said, just multiply. But he lifted it up to God and prayed. We also see that in the life of his disciples, the disciples did not ever ask Jesus, teach us how to perform miracle. They did not ask him, teach us how to be successful. Or teach us the 21 principle of success. They said, teach us, master, teach us how to pray. In my own mindset, as I'm looking at all of the scriptures, I'm saying, hmm, why did these guys not, if, if, if I was living the days of Jesus and with all the modern prosperity gospel, I would go to the master, teach me how to prosper. Or teach me how to perform miracles. But this, my own mindset is that the disciples look at everything their master was doing and they saw that the embodiment of what he was doing and the strength in which he did it was pulled from his prayer life. Teach us how to pray. And he taught them. And in Matthew chapter 6, he also told them, he said, when you pray, he didn't say if you pray. When you pray, make sure you go into your room and shut your door. Don't do it for the icing of men, so that your father who sees in secret, that father will reward you. That means there's a reward when we pray in align with scriptures. So that was that is something that was very interesting for me. And then as we continue to look at when in John chapter 17, you're expecting that this man is ready to go to die. Maybe he would have given some candy and some good things to his followers. But in that chapter, he prayed for them that they will be one. He prayed to the Father for them. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, can't you watch with me for an hour? Can't you pray with me? He went further to pray. Three times in a time of crisis, three times he's praying. As I look at the scripture, the first word that Jesus uttered on the cross was prayer. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. His last word was prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Why did this man pray so much? And that was the question I asked myself. If I'm going to follow him and he wants me to obey him, he says, teach them to obey all that have commanded. Then I believe that prayer is part of what he has commanded. And he was a role model in that. And that flows into the scripture. So, when I looked at all of this, I decided that, look, prayer is going to become a business. It's going to become the business of the, of the church and the movement. So, we inbuilt prayer so much that today, if you visit, you'll find kids, small kids from five years upwards. They will pray for you. And you'll be surprised when they pray. They will pray and they will memorize. We have kids that we have what we call obedient-based memorization competitions for children. The last one we did, this guy that won memorized 170 memory verses from the Bible off head. The, the list memorized 70 verses. These kids can pray. So we introduce it 
Because it's generational. We want to make sure that even the other generation knows exactly what is happening. Young people, older people, they pray and fast. And so we created a prayer path. And, and what we did was simply, every week, once a week, there's fasting and prayer happening all throughout the movement. And what are we praying and fasting for? It's hardly any prayer God make us prosper. No. Our prayer is first, God open the doors to unrich areas. Because until you draw men, they are not going to come. Until you open the door, when you open the door, nobody closes. But when you close the door, nobody opens. So open up those doors among the tribes, among countries, segments of population, subcultures. God, please. So that's one of the things we fast and pray about. The second thing is that God, you go ahead of us. And you touch the heart of the men and women. The heart of the king lies in the hands of God. You touch their heart. So that, touch their hearts, touch their eyes and their ears. So that they will see. Because the Bible says seeing, they don't see. Ears they have, but they don't hear. Hearts they have, but they don't perceive the word. So we are saying, God, whatever snare, whatever hot iron the enemy has used, either by tradition, by culture, whatever it is, you open their eyes, open their ears and their heart. I have a little bit of theological attachment I gave when Saul, you know, became blind. And then when they prayed for him, the prophet prayed for him. And the Bible said the scale, his eyes opened, the scale fell down. Well, it was a scale of ignorance. It was a scale of traditions. God, there are a lot of people with scales of ignorance. A lot of people with scales of tradition. God, we are praying, let the scale fall. So that they will see the way Saul saw. And so we pray for these things. We also pray for protection. Because we know that we are going to dangerous territories. I mean, this is no fun. Some of these guys are highly dangerous. We have lost a lot of people in, this, in the process of doing this. I have pastors to this whose wives and children we are raising up. Some of them have grown up who died in the process of doing this. So, it's, it's, so we pray that God, you will protect us. Because when you protect us, then we don't need any other protection. So we pray that prayer. We also pray for the strong man in that community to be, that God will bind the strong man. Jesus said, you can't enter into the house of a strong man except you bind the strong man first. Then you can enter and plunder the strong man's house. Well, literally, we say the strong man is whatever spirit is holding that community bound. It can be traditional spirit that is holding them bound. In Africa, those some of you that are exposed to the African traditional religion or African culture, you know very well that there are a lot of the strongholds in those communities. Some of them are legal. Not only in Africa, even when you go to Asia, you go to North. I mean, you see there are legal grounds. I would tell you from people that are part of the movement today, where the history of some of their communities, some of them, their great-great-grandfathers were warriors. 
Because, you know, in those days, it was more of a war conquering nations and tribes. And some of them will tell you that it's the story runs through their tradition that their great-grandfathers took an oath. Like they would take an oath to any spirit and say, we are going to war. Give us the power to conquer our enemy. When we conquer our enemy, we promise you that we are giving our whole life, this whole community, our tribe to you. And not only that, even our children yet unborn, we serve you. Now, when you are saying that, you are giving a legal ground to the enemy to take over. So the enemy has a legal ground to be where it is. So you cannot just walk in because you said I'm a child of God and just walk in and think, you know, Satan is going to clap for you and say, oh, welcome, thank you for coming. He's going to fight. That's why over and against scripture, so we are fighting the good fight of faith. Paul uses words like, you know, for we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness. You know, all of these things. So we pray against this. That God, we, we, we break those strongholds. And we also pray for strength and courage and God's provision as we go. Because you see some things, if you don't have the courage, you will not go second time. I have gone among tribes. We know tribes back home in other parts of Africa. They don't hide there like they are voodoo. It's not hidden. It's very open. They have days that they perform openly. It's not a hidden thing. For example, we'll have one of the tribes among the Timinis and some of the Limbas. They call it Sokobana. Sokobana means the big devil. And these guys perform openly. I'm telling you, anytime you visit Sierra Leone, maybe we have time you want to see Sokobana's performance, I will let you see it. But I'm telling you, these guys can take knife, they can put a sword in their stomach, and it comes from the back of their stomach. And they are dancing, and the blood is oozing out. They can gorge their eyes out, and pull their eyes and put it. They can cut their lips, mutilate themselves, and you see the blood, and they are dancing. Now, if you are a church planter, you see a thing like that, and you're supposed to go to them, it's going to take courage and strength and faith for you to go there. But today we have people who are former Sokobana leaders who are part of the movement planting churches. They had extraordinary powers. I have seen a Sokobana person, they, dig, they dug a grave openly. They would dig a grave a six-foot grave, and they will call, for example, they say, okay, you come, you come, call some strong men. Tie this man. They will tie one of them. Tie them. They say, lower him in the grave. Everybody's looking. It's not like, they lower the person in the grave, and they cover the person. They say, cover him, like you will bury anybody. And they will set a fire on top of the grave, and they begin to beat their drums. They will be beating their drums, dancing. This man is under the grave. And after some time, they will call. Let's say Joseph. Joseph! They are dancing. And you hear him answer. Joseph! You hear him answer. The third time, you see him standing on top of the grave. It takes a lot of courage to go to people, groups, people like that. But we have had church planters who have said, we'll go. 
And they've gone to those areas. We have areas where there was, it was all this type of practice. Today, we have multiple churches planted among them. They still have some of their practices in some of the areas, but we are still pushing. So that's why we pray for courage and strength. Or else you will not go. There are Muslim communities, you will not try. You don't want to go there. Because they will tell you, if you try this, you'll be a dead man. But God has taken us there. And the very people that were persecuting us later became persons of peace and opened their doors. So when you look at our records, our chats, because every community you go to, every tribe, we record. We keep a lot of records from the you know, small group level to higher level. So you see people writing. They have exercise books where they write. You see who was the person of peace. The name of the person of peace. We normally put the background of the person of peace. Was he a Muslim? Or an tra- African traditional religionist? Or a rededicated Christian? Those are the three things we ask. Somebody will not be going to church, but maybe... Ah, you will be surprised. 47% of all the person of peace were former Muslims. And then we have about 16% of African traditional religionists. Some of them were witchcraft doctors who operated in witchcraft. Today, they're followers of Jesus. And the list goes on and on. So that is the reason why we pray. So we have this weekly prayer, one day a week fasting. And then the first three days in the month, we call it the Daniel prayer. Based on Daniel, you know, chapter 9. And the Bible says, you know, Daniel had to go back. He fasted and prayed to seek God. Because it was already that God said, I will restore after 70 years. I'm going to restore back Israel. But Daniel fasted and prayed because asking God, when would this thing happen? And we know the story that as he was praying and God released the answer and the prince of Persia came. So we have this Daniel prayer that will do the first three days and it goes with fasting and prayer. Then we have half-night prayers. Every month we have a half-night prayer that will start from 8 to 12 midnight, four hours, in different places. I'm talking about hundreds and thousands of people praying. Then we have whole-night prayers, which starts from 10 midnight to 6 in the morning. People pray. We have a fasting we do the first three, last three days in a year where we don't eat anything, we don't drink water for three days. Asking God to move on behalf of the lost tribes. We do that. We have what we call victory weekends. Most of the people that get saved from Islamic background, that is what a lot of people don't know. Most of them have baggages they come along with. Traditional baggages, religious baggages. And most of them, some of them are possessed. So we don't only disciple them, we do a prayer of deliverance, asking God to deliver them from this background. So we call that victory weekend. We start normally Friday, we start to fast, you know, on Friday midnight, and we fast all throughout Saturday. We end by midnight Saturday, and we do the prayer time for them. And we have other prayer and, and fasting in communities and areas that normally happen. We have a chain prayer. As I speak to you right now, there are people praying and fasting. 
In fact, there are people, we fasted for one month before I left the country. There are teams of people fasting and praying for me. They will not stop until I go back. And then next month, we'll have another one more time of prayer for the whole of the month as we pray towards our, the gathering that we have. So for us, everything we do, we soak it in prayer. And it's not a religious thing because I will be fasting and I'm walking. I'm doing what I'm doing. Nobody knows I'm fasting. We are praying. We teach people to, to pray. You can pray without opening your mouth. You know, you can pray around this building. You know, just pray because it is about him. Not about you. So that's how we have introduced prayer and fasting. So normally tell people, you can start with three hours. You decide that, you know what? People who are willing, you can start with three hours. It can be from morning to 12 midday. We just pray and we just fast. In our different places where we are, if we're in the same building, maybe we'll decide we'll meet two times within this moment and pray for 10, 15 minutes. The more we begin to do it, the more it becomes part of our DNA. After three hours, we can push it to six hours. After six hours, we can push it to a day. And the more you begin to do it, the more it begins to become a discipline. And you can push that for days or weeks, depending on what you want to do. But um, that's how we started. And that's how we have encouraged other partners who, you know, we started to coach in this whole prayer process. You know, that's how we started with them. And today, they are, they are doing the same. It's not a rocket science. It's just simple obedience. <laughs> Core Stories is a ministry of the Otter Creek Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. To find more stories, go to ottercreek.org stories or follow us on Instagram at Otter Creek Church.